0: What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise, together. All right, so I know I already gave a little introduction about the two of you, but I would like to take a moment to let you introduce yourselves to anyone who might not be familiar with your story. Jay and Catherine, will you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got here?
1: Yes, I'm
0: Catherine.
1: And I'm Jay. And i uh... In a nutshell, as a 26-year-old new mom with a six-month-old baby in the next room, um, I suffered a massive brainstem stroke out of absolutely nowhere, no medical history, no warning, no symptoms, nothing. And um, would subsequently spend two years in hospitals and rehab to relearning to walk and eat and speak again and um from there almost five years of baseline recovery um before kind of being able to get our head above water and recognize this was the the new deal for our lives the new path um that we were going to be on i i am disabled today very severely i can't walk on my own i use a wheelchair and sometimes a cane and um yeah, I have a lot of health problems, big health challenges, but life is extremely good. I've stayed married to this guy. I, we've gone on to have a, a second child who's five now, mm. and uh, we have an incredible nonprofit for families with disabilities like us and put on a, a camp for families in the summertime. And we've written two books. What else?
2: Yeah, I think you covered all of them.
0: Okay. You one point. That's that's us. Okay. I love it. So far. So the thing I didn't mention in the introduction is that in real time, in 2008, as this is happening, our families are going to the same church. So, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So, we are like part of why I reached out was because I was witness in real time to Jay and Catherine pre this thing happening at 26 and post this thing happening at 26 and have stayed connected to your story in part because I was in the audience of the miracle that was happening inside of your lives and uh, have just been following your story because it is truly a testament to the power of hope. Um, It's an interesting thing. Uh, I mean, you've written these two books, Hope Heals and Suffer Strong. I want to encourage every human being who's got ears or eyes to read or listen to each of these. But um, we have, as a part of the business that we run and the tools that we put in people's hands, talked about the idea that hope is not a strategy, which is an interesting thing, right? Like the idea of hoping that your life's going to get better or hoping that things are going to work out okay. Okay just isn't enough, that you have to actually put a plan together that you got to do the work. At the same time, as I find myself in an interesting season of pushing through struggle on a level that I didn't previously expect to be confronted with, I have come to appreciate that hope is definitely also a strategy in persevering through things that you did not expect to come your way. So let's start just by talking about this idea of hope because, man, you've had to lean so much into it for having to push past something that obviously you did not see coming, had no interest in having enter your life, and yet you have turned into the life's work, the the thing that will inevitably end up being the legacy of what you leave on this planet, uh, in large part because of your ability to connect to hope through really, really hard things. I love, I
2: mean, I think as, from a starting point, some of the things that have been really helpful as we think about hope have been that hope is not the opposite of
0: hurt.
2: You know, sometimes we think, okay, my life is hard, so it's, it's so far away from hope. Uh, or my life is hopeful, so there should be no hardship in it. And I think really what we have found that hope is sort of in the middle of this continuum where hurt is on one end of it and hype is on the other end. And hope is sort of this mix, this commingling of the good and the hard life, this, this struggle. And, and I think sometimes just if we can change that perspective, then we can lean into this hope that's a little messier than we've sort of come to think of it, even as we use it sort of modernly. You know, hope is a lot uh, more gritty and earthy and down in, in the mess of life. And yet it nonetheless sees this transcendent future. And uh, in, in our experience, this this future promise lived out in the present is what hope is. And it might not make sense, sort of given the circumstances, given the things that are happening. But I think that's how we know it's true hope is when it transcends the circumstantial. And and certainly that makes it a little more of this, uh, this stable through line. Because if hope is just sort of contingent on your your feeling of positivity, or you know, your ability to pull yourself up by the bootstraps—you're just on this roller coaster of whatever comes along. Yeah, you know, you're without hope. Okay, now I'm with hope because things are okay. Now, now I'm without hope again because they turned out a little differently. Right. And so I think it's—it's it's taken us. You know, it, it didn't just happen. You know, the next day after our life was upended out of the blue. Right. It was this sort of day by day. Uh, filling up this experiencing hope through other people's stories, this leaning into some things we already knew, even in our faith experience, but really putting them to the real test and seeing if they would withhold and and finding that they did. And then that is what builds on the next time that something happens. You know, even most recently, um, two months ago, we were back in the, you know, MRI with some major brain issues um, that Catherine is experiencing, literally like getting some news today um, that's mixed. Yeah, this
0: morning,
1: <laughs> so yeah.
2: That is to say, you know, we we want our stories of hope to be this upward trajectory and this one note and sort of I, I, I get it and now I'm good. Like, let's just keep going upward. Um,
1: and they're more complex than that. And it
2: just doesn't work that way
1: uh, mm-hmm.
2: on earth. And, and that's okay. And I think sort of mourning the loss of that uh, lack of control but also leaning into that and sort of releasing some of the burden of what we carry um is this paradox that's really it's freeing and it's hard and um and yet it's been the way forward for us. You know, yeah. we're both type A, we're both pretty controlling, we're both pretty oh yeah, you know, on top of it and want to know the plans. And, oh yeah. And so this um this past 12 years has really has really upended that. Um, and yet, it's it's leaned it's it's helped us lean into this new way forward that's just opened up
1: yeah different and, way of thinking and Dave I want to say there is such a beautiful humility and vulnerability in saying so we've said hope is not a strategy but in this season I'm recognizing there is a strategic element to hope that's very beautiful and mm-hmm. real to mm-hmm. say that out loud because of course it's it's not the strategy only, there's a lot that goes into it, but mm-hmm. hope absolutely is part of the survival strategy of this world. I mean, for sure. I've seen firsthand that without a sense that something is happening outside of me, how can I possibly move forward? Like mm-hmm. I don't have enough in me to get out of bed tomorrow morning if mm-hmm. I don't see something beyond my current situation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. The you know, My experience in these last few months, it's definitely not been linear. I'm sure that the experience in your last 12 years, also not linear. You have a, a string of good days and then some bad ones. You have a string of some good months and then some bad ones. It's just not a total linear process, but also I've found myself in a world where I had a vision for what my future was going to look like, now staring at this blank piece of paper as I am now going to write out what the rest of my life will look like as it departs from what I thought it might. And that is both exciting and terrifying. It's exhilarating and daunting. I have to face a bunch of the fears of things that are different from what I thought my my being, my life, my family might look like. I'm sure you had that same kind of experience because, hey, you had a vision for what your future might look like and then you were uh, handed a blank piece of paper. How long has it taken or is it a thing that just continues to be written for you to pivot into, oh, this is our opportunity to actually write a completely different story because the cards we've been dealt are different from the ones we thought we'd have.
1: It's it's an everyday process, but I would say, It took about five years after the stroke to really come up for air and embrace the new normal element. And I love what you said, pivot, because that has been our great strength that there was one. We take no credit, Mm -hmm. but pivoting is what life is for everyone. You know, I'm the one in the wheelchair, but everybody's got invisible wheelchairs happening in their stories. And Mm -hmm. it's all... How do we pivot and embrace the wheelchair? I mean, that's the of the game. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so five years in, you come up for air. It feels like, all right, maybe there's this opportunity because of a friend. I think in the book, you said that a friend came to you and was encouraging you to bring your story to other people. Was it a daunting thing to think about having to share, to talk, to carry the weight of some of your experience, or was it exciting? Uh, how, how did you feel about, after you were up for air, actually bringing this experience to the world? I mean, yeah, I think it was cathartic, but I think it also was uh, was
2: a process that evolved and built on smaller versions of that. So I think sometimes we, we just want to jump into this big thing we've never done or experienced, and there's some benefits to that, but also sort of this build uh that's a very natural you know going from sharing our story on a blog you know like a prayer update blog for many years you know it wasn't like we're like okay like even a year in we should write a book right we know the ending of this story like thank god we didn't write it then because it wouldn't have been over and it would have probably been a really even sadder book than we wrote because the arc was not was not even nearly finished, and it's still not. But I mean,
0: yeah.
2: um, I think that's a, one piece of advice in a in a figurative way, but also really practical way. Like, don't write your your story until it's over, until it's until you can see the clear arc of where you want it to be uh, and where it goes. And so, I think for us, like, um, it, it was daunting in some ways, but we had a lot of um, I think mentors too who who had told their stories who had really impressed. Um something personal on us, like Johnny Erickson Tata is a woman who's um, she's just well, one of our dearest mentors. She's in Southern California too, but has this incredible ministry, uh, probably the biggest international uh, faith-based special needs ministry called Johnny and Friends.
1: Disability, Disability ministry.
2: ministry. So she broke her neck when she was 17 and her book was kind of like, you know, all over the world in like the late 70s. She would be on the Billy Graham Crusades. And so we, you know, we had just like tracked with this Incredible woman who is still quadriplegic to this day, celebrating fifty-three years. I'm not celebrating; just you know, remembering fifty-three years in a, in a wheelchair. And so, I think you look to people's stories like that who have meant something to you, and and it bolsters you to say, I, I don't even know if I can do this. I don't know how to keep showing up um, in the real vulnerability and the and the pain of this because it's still a really wounding thing to remember and even to do that publicly there's a there's a lot of nuance to that but I think we we saw her I mean 30 years after 40 that would have been like 45 years after her her accident tell her story in a public place and weep still yeah and we're like that is what we want in terms of how we want to be vulnerable enough to go there the right. real grief that is still there the woundedness but the hope that's still there because the worst thing is sort of like this canned story that just feels like okay now I'm gonna give the keynote and here's the worst thing that happened and the best things that happened and yeah, it's not yeah. really um registering like a human experience so that was there was just there was elements like that personal uh, mentors in our life and stories that had impacted us that informed how we i think, felt we could also do that and so
1: and I think what we also felt and still feel is that I mean would you say I got the miracle or didn't get the miracle it's always up for debate right Mm -hmm. because I'm living as a fully disabled person I can't drive a car Mm -hmm. right my hand doesn't work my face is paralyzed so am I healed it's up for debate Mm -hmm. however um That's part of the beautiful magic of sharing our story Mm -hmm. is we're wounded healers. We get to be a Mm -hmm. part of healing other people. And we like to say and tell other people that your story of overcoming whatever your nightmare is, is helping to blaze a trail that someone else will walk through and it it will illuminate their lives to be able to their way out. Mm -hmm. It's powerful. Mm -hmm. It's so good.
0: I mean, it's so good. Uh, Other people seeing themselves in your story or being inspired to believe that they also have the wherewithal to make it through whatever their hard thing is because of seeing how you've been able to do the same. It is, it's such an inspiring thing. There's, there's power in, your ability to share that gives people permission to feel and feel like they can overcome. And man, there's just, there's so much good in that. I love it so much. Talk about your relationship to faith before and after the stroke. I mean, I I love what you just said, Catherine. I think it's, you know, it is the question of questions. Like, are you the miracle because of, or in spite, like, there, there is something in the legacy that you will leave on this planet that is a result of this thing that you had to go through. I can connect right now to, man, there are so many miracles and so many people being blessed by your story. But I'm sure that uh, having to go through something like, like this, like anyone who goes through hard things, will inevitably challenge your faith. I also appreciate that faith is one of those things that until it gets challenged, maybe isn't necessarily something that you have a perfect handle on what it is until you find yourself having to wrestle with it in the midst of struggle. So um, just t- talk a little bit about your faith before and after this.
1: Yeah, trip. for sure.
0: Well, we I mean, we're from the South originally. I can give that a bit of context. And
2: I think so much of, um, you know, who we are is is built on sort of the communities that we've come from. And so often we sort of look back and, and lament or think we would have done it differently. But, but the reality is it, you know the good and the bad and the hard and the complicated is what's brought us to who we are today right so we,
0: sure. we
2: we did come out of like sort of the bible belt culture my dad's a pastor still and we grew up in the church but it wasn't until we moved away from that to southern california when we when we had just got married when i was going to go to law school at pepperdine Catherine was doing some stuff in the entertainment industry that we really got to choose like is it something we want for ourselves nobody's going to know or care if we go to church nobody's to judge that? Like we don't get any points in this culture for doing that, but we've, we found that, um, you know, our first Sunday in LA, we, we just felt drawn to, to seek that out at the community that you, you talked about, Bel Air Press Church. And we found something there that we wanted to be part of our adult, you know, our new adult life and our marriage, which was this group of people going through the same Thing and sort of struggling through in LA with being married and being young and trying to figure out their faith and how it all worked out. Right. And so that was really as formative as the Bible Belt was growing up. That sort of that season of early marriage and sort of taking ownership of our faith and exploring it and working it out with other people and their own unique struggles and questions was was huge. And little did we know that was sort of teeing us up to right. to enter into this huge storm and this huge sort of test. And we
1: we believe that God is always preparing us for what he has prepared for us. So mm-hmm. in a way he was equipping us uniquely yeah. for a season where we really needed to feel the comfort of God. I mean it was and it is very striking in all of our stories, mm-hmm. how there is such a comfort of walking through life now alone,
2: and I think even right before we um I literally, I mean a couple of weeks before, in our small group, our couple of small group, we were reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book called "Life Together." And Bonhoeffer, you know, was this theologian in the t- kind of Nazi era Germany, and um, just really wrote transformationally about what it means to live in this, again, not, sort of secularized, politicized Christianity, but like this real, like trying to walk together in this really hard, but good life of the kingdom of God on earth with other people. And like what a gift that is. And so we were really getting to do that in a way, you know, and again, it was right before everything changed. And that community is what showed up for us. And I think that's the the beautiful um, opportunity we overlook in our suffering is that, we don't have to do it alone. We were never meant to do it alone, and things like the church, in their most uh, brilliant manifestation, come alive when when the when the bottom is ripped out from under us, and that's what we get to give each other. And um, we often say like. You know, the platitudes that we saw, you know, here, or even ourselves, like, want to kind of, like, throw out when people are in pain, you know, like, oh, uh, like, I'm going to say them because I don't want to perpetuate them anymore. But, you know, the dumb things people say because they want to fill the silence and they want to instill something positive. But what we found in those waiting rooms, you know, the hospital, when it was very unknown what the what the outcome would be, was that the people who gave us their presence and their tears were, were the deepest ministry to us. And those were, um, you know, those are our church people. Those are our community. They weren't going to try to make it better because it was awful. But they were going to say, you you know, but you don't have to do this alone. And we're going to be with you. And we're grieving this with you. And we're going to even hope for you until you can hope for yourself again. Yeah. And I think that is the great gift of our community and our faith community, particularly, you know, to be, to be really honest and fair, it wasn't the law school that showed up above and beyond it well, you know there were some it wasn't the acting class <laughs> folks who showed up you know they did a little bit but it was They're really
1: biking.
2: you know it's oh. LA so whatever but it was our church who um who, who sat vigil in the waiting room for three straight weeks 24 seven and when I think about that um yeah it's pretty it's a pretty deep reality that that is what they had to offer they couldn't change the outcomes medically they couldn't say oh yeah and like just give it six more weeks and you know you're going to be up and out of the they they just said what we can give you is showing up uh, and not looking away from your tragedy but but showing up until you can
0: start showing up again you know to your life yeah and uh, it changed so good changed everything man Mm -hmm. Catherine, I was hoping you talked just a little about how Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18 was reworded to fit your life experience just a little bit when you started doing it, how it's continued to give you some hope.
1: Basically, for almost the full two years after the stroke, I was relearning how to do everything and nothing on my body would work. So I'm in therapy to swallow again for months and months, 11 months total, and could not swallow food, and only learned to walk again, kind of, after 18 months of not walking, and just really dramatic, like having to relearn to be a human being, in a lot of ways, and I found such a comfort in that passage, that, do you want me to say it, or...
0: Yes, yes, please.
1: Okay. So Habakkuk three, seventeen and eighteen say, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though so the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no fruit, though so there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my savior. And for some reason, I took that passage, and I rewrote it to fit my situation, which I would highly recommend for you and all your listeners to do. Because mm. when when I did it, I was really preaching to my own heart, like, this is what we're doing. So this is what we get to do. So I wrote, though I cannot walk, and I'm confined to a wheelchair. Though my face is paralyzed and I cannot smile, though I am extremely impaired and cannot take care of my own baby boy, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. And in doing that, Hmm. I was telling myself, this is what we're going to do. We're gonna rejoice because the joy is deep inside of me somewhere, somehow, still, and I am going to be a part of rejoicing. And okay. it um it has continued to transform my mind, mm-hmm. truly, to come to a place of recognizing that this was the joy was never taken from me. And this is a word for you, Dave, right now, and for many of your listeners, that joy is something that can never be taken, no matter how bad the story is. um, I believe if you have a pulse, you have a purpose that it is not contingent on how great life works out for you. That's a lie. Mm -hmm. Life can be really horrible for you, and you can have a deep transcendent peace from the Holy Spirit, joy of the Lord, comfort of Him in your heart, Mm -hmm. and it can change how you feel about your story, which is ultimately what matters, how we're feeling about Mm -hmm. this and acting based on how we feel.
0: Mm You're making me cry. So good work. Uh, I was not expecting that, but it's that is honestly, it's a super powerful exercise, and I it's something that I also will encourage every single person to do, uh, no matter what you're going through. The idea that you know you can still find joy and rejoice and all of those things. My goodness, Um, that's a good word. Good word, Catherine. Uh, I know that you have two boys, James and John. They are, I believe, twelve and five. Do they have a grasp on what has happened? What is happening? I assume that they have a handle on what is happening in their lives, but uh, how have they kind of come into appreciating the the world that you live inside mm. of? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you know, you're one of the great fears of being a parent is just what you will give to your kids. And it's sort of this
2: double-edged sword because you, you want to give them the best of you and the best opportunities and even go beyond, you know, what you've experienced. And yet you know inherently that you're also getting them Possibly some of the worst things of you, you know. Possibly some of the the hardest things that you can't control. And I think um, watching Catherine. So, so James was six months old when she had the stroke, and so, you know she had just blossomed as a mother in that short time. You know, he'd go everywhere with her. They would even do little modeling jobs together. They were on like some target products and it was just like oh, this beautiful melding um, and watching her become a mother. And it was way before we even thought we'd be parents. And so um, watching that then conversely ripped away from her was just one of the worst tragedies of it all. And um, you know, she was, would wake up hazily months after the stroke and, and be like, you know, she, could, she couldn't even talk, but she would try to breastfeed James, you know, and, and um, oh. she would just breastfed him, and then all of a sudden, you know, that stopped, and, but her mind was fuzzy, and so she was sort of think that he could just be with her in the hospital bed, and obviously he, he had been cared for by people and bottle-fed for months after her stroke, and so that, that awakening took a long time.
1: I was going to say, um, we, we talk about how the deep maternal instinct we think is even stronger than what a stroke took away is my focus upon waking up and understanding from the coma, like delirium is give me the baby. I got to take care of him. Not even really noticing yet. I can't even eat or speak or walk. I just, I need that baby to take care of, but I was in no place to take care of him.
2: And I I think then watching again, the, the progression of this new life be born, you know, the second chance life. And and with that, the second chance motherhood and the second chance family, and then getting to a place years down the road where the doctors and everybody approved, like, if you, if you want to grow your family, we'll give you our blessing to do it kind of against the odds, like, if you want, if this is what you want. And then we had our, our, our son, John. And again, like Catherine said, just that sort of the deeper thing than even a brainstem injury would be this maternal love. And, um, and it, it has been part of the healing process. And I think our boys have um, not really known any other life. You know, I think as they've looked around and gotten older, they kind of realized, Oh, like, you know, our mom can't drive us to this or, you know, there's different things, but they've also seen like, um, but our story is something that is, there's something weighty and special and, we get to be about entering in with what we've been given in our life
1: right.
2: to go enter into the hard stories of other people. And so even our, our the camp that we started a couple of years ago was just, you know, the story of disability was not a story. Even after Catherine became disabled, it wasn't a story we wanted to live. <laughs> you yeah. know, it was like for many years, it was like we we're praying she gets out of the wheelchair, praying everything goes back to normal, you know, that we can just sort of right. pretend this didn't happen. And then you get in a couple of years and you realize like, that's just not how it works. There's this line of demarcation in your life. You can't go across it again to what used to be. And so we, um, over time, mainly just with, with the people we begin to meet who had had strokes and whose kids had rare genetic disorders and, and who had been injured and were in a wheelchair, whatever, like these we, we realized these were our people. Like this began yeah. uh yeah. to create a new community, but one that we saw was in such dire need of resourcing and representation. And yeah. um, you know, the largest minority group according to the United Nations, it's <laughs> people insane. with disabilities, because it's just such a broad swath of people. And frankly most of us will have some experience with disability personally before we die if we live long enough. And so but the reality is, you know, there was just this group that we felt we could enter into and that we have been sort of given almost this like anomalous, um, story of disability. It doesn't normally work out like this. You don't normally have, you know, everything upended and kind of stay together and find a way to flourish on the other side of it. You know, you're bankrupt, you're struggling, there's suicide, there's depression, unemployment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
2: so we, you know, just said, how can we offer this opportunity for families to find rest and find each other and find resources, uh, spiritual resources and other kind of resources. And and then we invited the whole family to that, including our family. Right. Right. So so, our
1: kids are watching these stories and it's such powerful perspective for their own story. And so they're finding you know, it's complicated. They're finding all the things, but they're finding gratitude for what mommy can do and how daddy cares for mommy. And there's a lot of good stuff. And we talk a lot about that. We want to be a part of narrating to our children that life is hard and good at the same time, Mm -hmm. that we've really messed it up in the Western world, Mm -hmm. making it only good or only hard and those can't coexist because that's so silly it would have done me a whole lot of good to recognize growing up life can be really hard and really good at the same time Mm -hmm. but I only understood those as two separate buckets they can't be joined Mm -hmm. and so we're narrating to our children that God made them to do hard things and the good story he's writing in their lives Mm -hmm. and um we're just starting to see a, a glimmer that they're getting it, that their story is good, even though it has hard things in there.
0: So good. I mean, and here's the thing this is the only normal they've ever known. And so, this for them is life, right? And so, there's something beautiful in the way that they will grow up with hearts for people who are differently abled and just all of it, just all of it, all of it. I mean, there's there will be so much good that ends up coming from it. I love it. Let's talk about your relationship. Can we talk about your relationship? I'd like to talk about your relationship, just for a second. So you guys met in college, I believe, which uh, it has to be like 20 years ago. You were friends who became more than friends. You started making out, I assume. But here's the thing. We're, you know, we're, you know, having a conversation in front of people who are probably inside of a spectrum of different kinds of relationships, some that are thriving, some that are not, some who are married, some who are divorced, widowed, all the things. And so, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how you've managed to keep the spark alive, stay connected and in love in spite of, or maybe because of, uh, every single thing that you've been through, even if there were times when you thought uh, that this might be the end of what you knew as you transitioned into now what you know. How'd you ever co- overcome the adversity? I assume that there were fights or arguments or all of the things that inevitably every relationship works through. You just happen to have been handed some extra things to have to push past. Talk a little bit about how that uh, has transformed your relationship over time. Uh,
1: So first of all, yes, all the fights, all the like drama, like lots of hardship. Even if I never would have had a stroke, we would have tension. That's just kind of the way it works in a marriage. I think
2: the best fights too are on the way to young marriage. That we were leading the young married Sunday school class <laughs> in our church, you know, that was just of right uh, the most intense fights would happen, which yeah. is probably not an accident. But seriously.
1: Yes, but so.
2: but I think nonetheless, you know, this idea of um, of showing up one day at a time. I mean, I think that was um, the rhythm. Probably we got into early on when life changed. We were, you know, both twenty six. We had been married three and a half years. And I think so often with relationships, you know, we look so far down the road and think nothing's going to ever change. And there's this sense of despair that creeps in. Or we look backwards and think, you know, I just wish it was that way again. And yeah. I think that applies really to all our relationships and all of our uh, relationship with ourselves, too. But in marriage, we've just seen, like, is there this opportunity to love what's right in front of us today? And will we wake up tomorrow and try to show up and see what's available the next day and just keep going. And, and again, that's oversimplifying because it's, it's, it's been a huge, huge, huge gift to get to walk through this together, but it's been incredibly hard too. I mean, we're, we're both super strong willed, you know, super type a super, like I'm an eight on the Enneagram Catherine's a three. So we get things done, but it's not, you know, like there's this sort of simple equation, like you go through trauma too, and you're birthed into somebody new, you know? And I think, um, you, you know, when you get these wedding vows, there's this sort of thought, like, how we are today in this moment in this transaction is what it's going to be like in 30 years. And I think even like marriage uh, studies show like every marriage just evolves into at least two or three variations of itself over time. And so I think that back to that, uh, sort of ability to pivot I think is, is pretty huge. You know, we act like love is this sort of concrete thing rather than this than this evolving living thing. Um, and are we willing to roll over? I love how, um, uh, this researcher said, I'm trying to remember his name, Stanley Hauervoss uh, says, you know, we basically marry strangers. Like we think we know who we're getting a relationship with, but are we willing to, once we roll over, say when the kids leave or when, you know, things change, like, are we willing to say like, I don't know who that is exactly, but I'm, I'm willing to learn to love somebody new. And um, again, Catherine has learned, had to learn to love somebody new as well. You know, it's like, we both have been radically changed through our struggle and through our story of hope and overcoming and are we going to still show up and and try to learn this new you know learn to love this new person
1: in front of us and dave i just again have to say like it's just very beautiful that you asked Mm -hmm. us to talk about this Mm -hmm. just i can imagine all the emotions and what you're Mm-hmm. living and walking through and to ask about our marriage um just really just speaks to who you are i think that you want your listeners to hear that as well yeah. and that's just so vulnerable and bold of you it's just very impressive mm-hmm. that's very powerful you're a wonderful man wow
0: thank you you're so sweet Catherine. thank you i there you you guys have chosen each other in the midst of insanely, incredibly, ridiculously big, huge change every day over and over and it's inspiring. And I, you know, I just, I uh, I applaud you. I think it's fantastic. I think it's awesome. Catherine, you have talked in interviews before about how important it is for young people, especially women to understand that a beautiful person on the outside can still be suffering on the inside. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how, though there will always be storms and struggles around the corner, you can continue to find strength and positivity in your life, regardless of the appearance that you may be putting on to the outside? Oh,
1: gosh, for sure. So like I was telling you about earlier, you know, I'm the one in the physical wheelchair every day, but everybody's got wheelchairs. They're dealing with inside of them. I call them the invisible wheelchairs mm-hmm. that the lady next to you in the grocery store a whole bunch of junk in her life but you wouldn't necessarily know it in some ways i get a pass because i've got a wheelchair and nobody's like her life isn't really messed up mm-hmm. you know like i in some ways there's this bizarre freedom element to the wheelchair because nobody's pretending everything is okay in my life mm-hmm. it's, it's weird they're gonna treat me with more care I'm fragile mm. you know I'm disabled so other people walking around normal with no problems don't get that that privilege mm. and um, you know it's complicated because it's coming to very high price and yet there is this freedom element to that and I think it translates so powerful as I've thought about, Issues, particularly with beauty and appearance, and how that plays into this whole conversation. Um, I've kind of come to a place of recognizing that so much of the story of our actual appearance, particularly as women, but men too, is not a story we've told ourselves. Mm. It's stories we've believed from everybody else about who we are what we look like, what that even means. And so much of truly understanding our, our appearance is about unlearning, unlearning and unbelieving a lot of things that are not true. I think true beauty is about walking away from shame. In fact, that so much of our beauty is caught up in feeling shame about not looking this way or Looking this way or so many things that actually have nothing to do with how I feel about the way I look. It's how other people told me to feel about the way I look, which is so messed up. Mm -hmm. And I believe that we should be listening to God's voice and not the plethora of people that don't matter telling me how to feel about myself.
0: So good. There's so much beauty in your strength and your story and your hope and your message. And I man, I'm so stinking appreciative of it. Uh what is next for the Wolf family? Do you know what's next? I mean you've written two books, but do you I mean you're 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 running a camp. You have a whole host of amazing things. Are there are there designs for world domination? What what is happening next?
1: Oh my gosh, what would you say?
0: I think um you know I think it's been interesting even
2: in the season of uh, shifting gears during the pandemic to just similar to how we've talked about trauma as this opportunity uh, it's an explosion of a world but it's an opportunity also to rebuild a new world together with the pieces yeah. and i think in not too dramatic in a way but also uh, in a really exciting maybe a little bit daunting way to think what, what what kind of world do we want to rebuild on the other side of this <laughs> and um so i think we we're, we're just excited to dream about what that could look like and, and again that's a privilege to be able to do that frankly um in this season and so um you know we have been able to pivot a little bit and we're excited to to see sort of how again this limitation has opened up a new kind of flourishing and I think it's it is a story I think we'll never stop telling and it's the story of disability that we found like what looks like a limit okay a wheelchair wow you're confined to a wheelchair that's so tragic well what if I actually saw this limitation as my avenue the very medium that I go be free in the world. And I think when we start sort of upending sort of these this idea of what is limited, what it means I don't get my dream, like what means like the story is not right. And say, what if that actually is the way in which I'm going to be able to be in the world, I can clearly more focus on what I have, I can be creative with it, I can find compassion for other people and their limitations. And so um,
1: and you you live with such clarity and purpose, yeah. and you this is the path, so I know how to get there.
2: I think you know with our with our heart story too. Like you know, in theory, your heart would be more protective, self protectionist, or maybe it'd be a little hardened, and it would be sort of like not wanting to be vulnerable. But I think what's beautiful is when you've had your heart broken open. Um, you know, again, it's part of our I think our faith experience and our and our journey of walking with Jesus, like your heart doesn't have to become hard. It can be soft. It can be expanded and so when you have that experience of compassion which really means to suffer with that's really what the root of compassion is about it's about suffering it's about loving yeah. something enough to suffer with it and for it and to say i already have enough stuff in my story but i'm going to actually choose to get under the weight of yours too yeah. and lighten the load for everybody and so i think that continues to motivate us that we have been given this experience of of hope in the midst of a lot of wounding and pain and unknowns and how do we get in the middle of other people's hard stories and and help uh, lift the burden off of them a bit so whether that's disability or that's you know just we're open we're open to any stories that are hard and uh and and
0: we're hopeful to get to speak in into what has um given us a new way forward and next is going to be good for you guys no matter what it ends up being and i am here for it i am here for it come on Uh, I'm going to end this with uh, the question I ask every human humans that come on this show. And that is, I want to be able to give people a tangible piece of advice, a single thing that they can walk away from this conversation with. So if someone is currently walking through a hard season, if something unexpected has come into their life and who isn't experiencing unexpected things in the midst of this world we're living in right now. What is the single thing that you would recommend that they do today to help make that pain just feel a little lighter in their life? I uh, you got an
1: answer. yeah. So it is so important when in seasons of terrible darkness to not waste what you're learning in the season of darkness. Mm. Don't just try so hard to get out of it that you don't learn the lessons mm. in it. And that is so obvious. But all we want to do is fight or flight mode and get away from it rather than saying, I love the passage, Isaiah 45:3, that God has hidden treasure, riches stored in secret places, that there's really good stuff in the darkness that we get to cherish the rest of our lives and spend our lives with we're never going to forget where we've been honestly mm-hmm. try as we might but our character is different because of mm-hmm. it our perseverance is different our ability to live well because of the suffering we've been through is different and mm-hmm. all of that comes with us for our lives if we have eyes to see it that way
0: That's right. so good i love it all right You guys are amazing. I'm so grateful for getting to see you again. I think it was in the Young Marrieds class 12 years ago where you were teaching. Rachel and I were sitting in the audience that I may have actually seen you last, which is unbelievable on a hill in Bel Air, California. Uh, All right. If if someone wants to uh, follow you, be inspired by you, support the work you're doing with the camp, any of those. How can they get connected to you in the internet? Yeah.
1: So our website is hopeheals.com and then everything is Hope Heels. So all our socials, um, that's no, so all. All the things, all the, make it easy. <laughs> our first <laughs> book is easy. called Hope Heels. That's right. And our second book is called Suffer Strong. Both of which are really important concepts.
2: And we've got, excellent. And again, the camp, you know, what's really cool about the camp we have for families with special needs is that there's people from, all over the country and even the world that have come to uh rural Alabama in the summer. If you've never summered in Alabama, you haven't lived, obviously. <laughs> I mean you get it in Texas, it's hot. But it's so cool to just have um, you know, people that who found us basically like on Instagram or online say, I I, I just felt like I was supposed to be a part of this community and it's Moses been transformation.
1: Volunteers and this right. camper. Yes. Both.
2: Yeah. So we'd love You know, it takes a huge village. You can't, you know, disabilities tell us nothing. It's like you can't do life alone. And uh,
0: I love it. We will put the links to that, to your socials, to your books, in the show notes, so that every human being who's listening can uh, check you guys out. I am so grateful for you both. I am so excited for the work that you will continue to do, the way that you will continue to inspire people with your story and give hope to people who are desperately in need of it. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate you. I am rooting for every single thing that you guys are gonna do in the future. Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed this conversation and how the heck couldn't you, I hope that you will take a picture of it, that you will put it into your social, that you will tag myself and Hope Heals on Instagram and tell us what you got from it, share it with some friends. And until the next time, we will see you next week on another episode of the Rise Together podcast. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.